narrative. But we're in Daniel chapter 1 tonight, and uh, we're going to read verses 3 through 8. Okay? I'm going to read it, then we'll have some introductory thoughts and and dive right into the message. Verse number 3. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Key verse in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The title of the message is simply this, Preparation for Pressure. Preparation for Pressure. I think you'd agree with this next statement. Your skills, your talent, and your abilities are challenged most when they're under pressure. Isn't that true? Meaning you can do something comfortably when you're not under pressure. Whether it's singing, playing a sport, playing an instrument, or a lot of other things, but, but, but when pressure comes, it's easy to choke under that circumstance. And that's why preparation is so important. Preparation prepares you for pressure. How many in here, by the raise of a hand, have heard of TED Talks? Raise your hand. TED Talks. TED, T-E-D, stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. Their slogan reads this, ideas worth spreading. And you can go on YouTube and you can watch literally hundreds of TED Talks about all kinds of various subjects. Some of them are, are very, very good. TED speakers are mandated, they say, to, to take preparation for their 15 to 20 minute speech very seriously. In fact, they say that the ratio of preparation to performance is one hour of preparation and practice for every one minute of performance. The preparation for a TED speaker begins eight months before the date of the performance. During this eight months, they'll spend over 100 hours of writing, rewriting, rehearsing, and memorizing their 15-minute speech. Not to mention, they get feedback about the script and their delivery from a minimum of 55 people. Before the performance. Can you imagine, staff guys, if if we got feedback from 55 church members before we preached every message? This is all for a 15-minute speech. They understand this. The number one fear among human beings is public speaking. And even for those that are naturally gifted at public speaking, pressure increases dramatically when you step in front of people. And TED Talks have embraced a very important principle that I want to sink into your mind tonight. And it's this. How you prepare when there is no pressure will determine how you perform when the pressure comes. Do you hear me? Your preparation 
when there is no pressure will determine your performance when the pressure comes. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about how to prepare for the pressure of a TED Talk. I do want to talk to you about how to prepare for the pressures of life. 2020 was a year of a lot of pressure, wasn't it? I'm sorry to break the news to you, but 2021 is going to bring its share amount of pressure too. Health pressures. Brother Kent and Miss Phyllis are already starting off 2021 with a lot of health pressures with her leg. Some of you have already battled health pressures right at the turn of this new year. There's going to be financial pressures for some of you. Vocational pressures for some of you. Parenting pressures for some of you. Marital pressures. Moral pressures in terms of temptation. Emotional pressures. Spiritual pressures. My burden is this. If you want your faith to thrive, when any of these kind of pressures come, you have to prepare before they come. Get this. You prepare your faith to handle a health crisis before you get unhealthy. You prepare your faith for a financial setback before you lose your money. You prepare your faith for relational tension and stress before it arrives. You prepare your faith for the temptation to compromise before the temptation ever comes your way. In fact, you give your faith the best chance to survive under pressure if you will take time to prepare it when there is no pressure. This principle is put into play in the passage I just read. Here's what's going on in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel lived in a place called Judah. His homeland was seized and conquered by the Babylonians. The king of the Babylonians was King Nebuchadnezzar. His goal is to take the finest and brightest young men from Judah and bring them into Babylon and totally indoctrinate them. And he tried. He changed their names to Babylon names. We read that. He immersed them in Babylonian culture. He even attempted to, to uh, change or, or teach them the Babylonian language. As Daniel arrived, we're, we're, we're giving the picture of, of what happened in verse 8. He and other Hebrew boys his age, who were raised under the same teaching of the Old Testament law that he was, were escorted to the king's table. And they all sat around the king's table that day, and they were offered the finest of the king's meat and the finest of the king's wine. Here's the problem. This certain type of meat was off limits to the Hebrew people. God already told them they weren't supposed to eat the type of meat that they were being offered by King Nebuchadnezzar that the Babylonians freely partook of. And it was meat that, that had been earlier sacrificed to idols, which would have been equivalent to the Hebrew boy of bowing down to foreign gods. Now, I know a lot of you know this story, but would you put yourself for a moment in the biblical script? Would you be Daniel for a second? Would you sit at the table for a moment in your mind? You're escorted into a foreign country, a very fine palace, and you're taken to a table with many of the friends that you went to school with, many of the friends that, 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 that you worked on homework with, many of the friends you played in the neighborhood with, many of the friends that, that you sat under the rabbi's teaching with, perhaps. And they're all sitting around the table and you notice that, that, that the waiters bring a a glass of wine and set it before you. They, they bring the king's meat, and you know what kind of meat it is. They sit it before you. The king says, eat up, boys. Eat your heart out. And if you're Daniel, you're uncomfortable at this moment. Something's not right. 
And here's what makes it worse. You look up and you see that all your Hebrew buddies are stuffing their face. They're drinking their wine. They're joking around about it. Hey, man, we can actually eat this and not get in trouble for once. But Daniel, there's something in him that just won't let him give in. It won't let him buckle. Verse 8 said he was purposed in his heart. I call it a conviction. Something he was absolutely convinced of in his mind would not let him even pick up his fork. Have you ever been in the room where it seems like you're the only one doing the right thing? Have you ever been in a room where you're the only one refusing to do the wrong thing? If you have, you know exactly what the pressure Daniel was feeling, but I, I, you should probably like multiply that by 10 because his life was on the line. It wasn't just getting made fun of by his friends that was on the line. Literally, his life would have been on the line if the king would have heard that, that, that Daniel was rejecting his meat then the king would chop off Daniel's head, perhaps. Daniel's under an intense amount of pressure, but he still did not defile himself. Now, this is big time. He didn't give in to this pressure. It's because he was convicted. He's purposed in his heart that he shouldn't. How did he do that? It had everything to do with how he prepared. Please don't miss this. Daniel did something before he ever got to the king's table. That allowed him to make that godly decision. He, he did something or was convinced of something while he was in Judah as a young teenager that enabled him not to give in to that pressure. And it's so very important that we realize what it is because it's, what, it's what's going to help our faith to thrive in the pressures of our life. And by the way, don't think that Daniel got the short end of the stick just because he was the only one that didn't eat. He later negotiated a diet plan with one of the king's servants. And he ate less tasty food, less nourishing food in some regard. But the Bible says at the end of chapter one that he ended up 10 times better than all the rest of the boys who stuffed their faith with the wrong kind of meat. Doing right always pays off. Always pays off. But what did Daniel do to ensure himself that he could make that decision in the midst of pressure? I'll give it to you in a statement, then we're going to go to work on it. You ready? It's going to seem like it's disconnected from the text at first, so, so hang with me. Daniel approached the Word of God carefully. Daniel approached the Word of God carefully. And I want you to think about this. Think about it. If the pressure to compromise centered around food, and it did, how did Daniel know what food to eat and what food not to eat? How did he know? Well, as a Jewish boy, he would have studied the Torah. The first five books of the Old Testament, some Jewish boys, by the time they were 12, memorized large portions of the Torah. Now, now think about this. If you've ever read the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, there's a lot of dietary laws in there. And there would have been times when Daniel's mother or Daniel's father said, come on, kids, hustle into the living room here. It's time to have family devotions. And Daniel would have said, what are we studying tonight, Dad? Oh, you know, what to eat and what not to eat. Dietary laws again. And it would have been on par, parents, with you taking your teenager sitting down in the living room reading to them the dictionary. I mean, pretty boring for the average Hebrew boy. 
And most of the Hebrew boys at the table that day, you could tell they disregarded all their parents' teaching growing up about the, the Old Testament dietary laws, but not Daniel. He was able to approach the Word of God careful enough to learn about what to eat and what not to eat. To not just learn about it, but to retain it. To understand it. To not just understand it and retain it, but watch this. Be convinced that it's true. Because around the table that day was not his mom and dad. He didn't have his mom whispering in his ear, Daniel, remember what you learned growing up. No, this would be like equivalent to a Christian parent sending their kid to a, to a four-year university. Mom and dad aren't there anymore. Grandma and grandpa aren't around the table. Your youth pastor's not there texting you. The only reason Daniel was able to survive around that table today was because before he got to the table, he approached God's word carefully enough for it to become his own. It wasn't his mom and dad's rules. It wasn't his mom and dad's regulations. Even when the dietary laws and the study thereof would have been so very important, Daniel disciplined himself to retain them and understand them and to believe them. And then he applied them under pressure. Here's the point. Because he approached God's word carefully when there was no pressure, he had the convictions necessary to thrive when the pressure came. How do you have... How, how does your faith thrive under pressure? It's called convictions. It's forging convictions when there is no pressure. What are convictions? Here's my definition of a conviction. An internal belief that will withstand high amounts of pressure. Did you get that? What is a conviction? An internal belief that will withstand high amounts of pressure. Catch this. Convictions are not forged under pressure. They're revealed under pressure. The pressures of your life will tell you whether or not you really have convictions. When you lose your health unexpectedly, when you get a bad diagnosis, when you have to undergo an extensive procedure, when your life is altered by an injury, that's when you'll know if you have real convictions. When you face a financial setback because you lost your job or your car broke down or medical bills are piling up, that's when you know you'll have real convictions. When you face relational stress and your marriage goes through a rough patch and one of your kids goes through a season of rebellion or someone at church offends you deeply, that's when you'll know what you really believe in. When temptation comes knocking on your door and the lust of the flesh and, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is drawing you to a sinful habit or a sinful thought or a sinful response or a sinful attitude or, or a sin that, that you're either hiding or you're addicted to, that's when you'll know what your convictions are. Convictions are what you stand on when everything else is taken out from under you. Convictions are, inter are internal beliefs. Watch, they go with you everywhere. Convictions can't be shaken by outside pressure. Convictions withstand outside pressure. Convictions cannot be changed by how, how high the winds of, of compromise are blowing towards you. Or the winds of temptation are blowing towards you. Or the winds of discouragement are blowing towards you. Convictions, they endure beneath those things. So how do you forge them? If you need them so desperately, how do you forge them? The same way Daniel did, through the word of God. Do you remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7? Jesus said, if you want to build your life, um, 
successfully, if, if, if you want to be a solid Christian, he used the metaphor of how you build a house. You've got someone that builds their house on the sand. You've got someone that builds their house on the rock. And when the pressures of life come, he used the metaphor of a storm and the winds. When they come, the guy who had his foundation built on sand, it's going to blow over. The guy who had his foundation built on the rock, which represents the word of God, is, is the guy who's going to stand strong in the midst of the pressures of life. What is Jesus saying? You must build your life on the conviction of the Word of God or the pressures of life will overwhelm you. Here's what that means. We have to learn. If convictions are built through the Word of God and if convictions are what we need for our faith to thrive under pressure, we've got to learn how to approach the Word of God carefully. But that's not our tendency especially those of us who hear the word of God often. Instead of approaching it carefully, here's how we approach it when we come to church, casually. We do that for a number of different reasons. Here's one, we're just too familiar with it. We've heard the word of God preached our whole life. We've been coming to three services a week for many, many years. On top of that, we've been coming to the same church, which means we've been hearing the same style of preaching. What makes it even more difficult is you hear the same voice all the time. And I know I'm only five months into this thing, and so you might actually still be under the delusion that I'm a halfway decent preacher. But give it five years. I guarantee you this, I'll still be studying like crazy and and preaching my guts out to you. But you might get used to my voice if you haven't already. The truth is you could bring the greatest speaker in America behind this pulpit and if he talked to you three times a week, you'd get used to his voice. You might have got used to your your fellowship Bible class leader's voice a long time ago. You might have got used to your, your youth pastor's voice already in the last year and a half. And, and the truth be told, unless the sermon, for some Christians, unless the sermon has a lot of jokes, or a lot of stories, or a ton of energy, or unless it's a guest speaker, a lot of people have a hard time tuning in. Just too familiar with it. Now, I'm not saying it's because you're bad people. You understand that's a human propensity. Same voice, a long time, and, and, and it just, we've got to work harder. We've got to work harder at listening. But, but there's, there's a couple other reasons why we tend to approach it casually. Another one is because we're just distracted. What might you be distracted with when you come to hear a sermon? Fatigue. Many of you work incredibly hard. Long days, long hours, really busy weeks. For those of you that come to church on Wednesday nights, I... I know you rush and, and come straight from, many of you, a board meeting or, or you come straight from a situation at work that arose in the last minute or whatever the case might be. Many of you are just, you're lucky to get here many times. And so to be here in the, in the right frame of mind consistently is an extra task for you. I have sympathy for that. I get that. I understand that. I'm with you on that. And some of you, frankly, when you come to church the, and you're listening to God's word, the biggest thing you have to fight, honestly, is fatigue. You, you have a very busy life, very hard life. On top of that, we have comfortable chairs. 
And I don't preach for only 10 minutes. And I never will. (laughs) Some of you are just simply distracted by the stress of your life. Dad, I, I think I have sympathy for that too. Because I live this, right? I mean, Sunday's my Super Bowl. This is, this is the only day of the week I work. I, I anticipate I work to preach hard on these days. I, I am just zoned in. I, I'm right here every Sunday. Even on Wednesday nights, I'm just there. I'm locked in. But, but I'm sympathizing with you for a moment because, because I know that many of you are facing things throughout the day and weeks that when you come in here and you're a spectator during a sermon, you're not one of them behind the pulpit. You haven't crafted the 4,000-word sermon. Then, then it is way harder for you to get those stresses out of your mind. you got to go back, right back to that stress the moment you walk out these doors. And you're trying to figure out how you're going to navigate that. I get that. But that's a distraction, is it not? I think, I think you're distracted by your phone sometimes. Now I don't have sympathy. That's something you have to have them on for work and such. But for the most part, I think our phones probably ought to be in our pockets. I'm not trying to talk down to you at all. You do whatever you want to do. But I, I just think that in the long term, our phones are, are one of the greatest tools we have, but one of the biggest distractions. Are they not? And, and, and I, I just, I'm trying to think through some reasons why we come to church and we just don't approach it carefully sometimes. Familiarity, distraction. Uh, can, I, can I give you another one? Because in your mind, what I'm preaching on that particular day, you don't feel like you need it. Why? Well, it doesn't apply to your life. So you think where you're at right in the moment. You know what I mean? I, I preach a Psalm of Asaph on Wednesday night about grief. You're not grieving. You're good. I'm going to preach this Wednesday on, vindic- on vindication. Well, you're not wanting to chop anybody's head off right now. So I'm not going to come, right? I preach on marriage. I'm not married. Or I'm a widow. Preach on parenting. I don't have kids. Or my kids are out of the house. Preach on giving. I've given faithfully for years. I don't need this message. And it's our natural inclination to zone out during the, during the, the sermons where, where we don't think we need them in the moment. Question. Do you really think Daniel, when he sat in the living room and heard his dad talk about the dietary laws, thought for a second, I need to sit up because I'm going to need this one day. You really thought, do you really think he anticipated that he would sit at King Nebuchadnezzar's table in his palace? What Hebrew boy does that? He approached it carefully at a moment which he didn't need it. Knowing that later on his life would intersect with it. And we got to be careful about zoning out because it doesn't apply to us. I'll give you one more reason. Because a lot of times when you come to church and you hear a sermon, your life's not bad. Your life is good. There's not a lot of pressure in your life. And so you, you don't have that edge. You don't have that, 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 that hunger. You don't have that sense of dependence. And so it's easy for you to come and go because 
your finances are okay, your health is okay, your relations are, no, nothing's perfect in your life, but there's not this major trial going on in your life, so you've lost this spiritual edge, you've lost this hunger, you, you've lost the sitting on the edge of your seat saying, what do you got for me today, God? You've lost that because you're not in a desperate spot. And most of the time, children of God, when we're on a desperate spot, we lose our sense of dependence. And that causes us to lose our hunger for the word during a sermon. To get this to go into your mind, what I'm trying to get across, I'm going to tell you a story. I think I've told you this before. But it's a story of, of, of us helping our police department friends with active shooter scenario training. And, and it's, it's when my, my dad had become the chaplain. he became become a, a, a certified officer in 2006. And me and Alfred had, had just come on the staff at Fellowship Baptist Church in 2006. And so it had to have been around the 2007 maybe time frame. And, and they were training, doing this active shooter scenario training at the old South Middle School building, which is now the rec center. And uh, Mark West, I remember you were there. Chris Head was there. John McCord was there. Um, all those guys were there. And uh, anyway, my dad voluntold us um, that we were going to be the bad guys. And so we get there and um, they, they, they give us, you know, some instructions and, and, and then they give us a gun. So, you know, every shooter has to have a gun. And, and they chose to give us this, this revolver, like an old-fashioned revolver. It, it kind of looks like the, the cap guns you buy with the orange ends on them at the toy store. But this is a real gun. Um, but when I looked across and saw the SWAT team has these semi-automatic rifles, I thought, this isn't fair. I mean, what demon-possessed active shooter goes in with a revolver? This ain't reality. On top of that, we get like one soap round. That's it. That's it. We don't get like clips and, and ammo and all this stuff. Well, they've got ammo everywhere. So we're already at a disadvantage. They tell us this. We, we want to act this out as realistic as possible. So you and Alfred, you, you go to basically the entrance and you, you shoot this semi-automatic rifle, but it had blanks in it. You shoot that a couple of times and that'll cue us to begin the process of coming in the school. After you shoot that, you run wherever you want, do whatever you want um, until we get you. And so we do that. And, and time passes by and we see the SWAT team and the officers come in to the door. And they're very, very intense. They're very serious about this. They know that we only have basically one soap round in our gun. But they're acting like we have an arsenal of weapons. And so they come in. And, and, and we just began to run from room to room. And Alfred's like, what are we going to do, man? Where are we going to go? And I'm like, I don't know. Just go over there. And so, so we go to that room and they get closer. And he's like, I don't want to stay here. I'm like, I don't either. And so we go to another room and we get basically to the point where we have no more options. No more options. And so Alfred said, they said we can do whatever we want, right? I said, yeah. So he flips the desk over. And he just says, get down. And so we just get down behind the desk. I'm like, what are we doing? And he's like, just, just wait for him to come in and we'll figure it out. And so we hear their voices in the distance, but they're getting louder and more intimate the closer that they get. And they're, they're barking out these calls like clear and out and whatever they say when they're left and right. And it's very, very intense. Like, dude, these guys are serious. Do they know we're just a bunch of preachers? Like we're not real shooters. And we're, we're behind the desk. And when they come in, I remember like it was yesterday. 
When they come in, Alfred doesn't even tell me what he's going to do. He just stands on the desk and just acts like he's got a semi-automatic rifle. He's got one little soap round. And he shoots his one little soap round and then he gets lit up. In the meanwhile, I'm in the fetal position behind the, behind the desk. I mean, what in the world did Jesus put me into? And I, 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 I tried to find a white flag and there was nothing. And uh, so I said, hey, I basically watched the show Cops growing up every Saturday night. I just started humming the theme song, getting motivated. And I watched my brother a lot growing up and he was a wannabe gangster and all that. And so I thought, I'm just going to give this a shot. So, I, no pun intended. So, so I stood up and I just, I just went gangster style. And they weren't impressed. They weren't intimidated. They didn't say, oh, oh, your gun's crooked. We're scared of you now. Nothing like that. Literally the whole SWAT team with their semi-automatic rifles unloaded on me. In the heat of the moment, what I forgot is, is that one of them had instructed us that when you get hit, make sure you go down. That's how we know that we, we got gotcha. you. I forgot to go down. And so I'm just like this, just getting pelted, you know, and getting lit up. And they're like, prayer, fall down, fall down. And so I, I fell down. And remember, the moments following that, you know, there was a little bit of laughter there between me and Alfred and a lot of pain. But I remember those guys, there was not a lot of jest there was not a lot of like chest bumps and knuckles and dude, we got those two preachers. There's none of that. They immediately formed, formed a small group and the leader of that group began to debrief with those guys. And I just sat on the outside kind of just listening to that. And I, I asked one of the officers, I, I said, man, you guys are serious about this. And they were talking about things they should have done better. And they're talking about, you know, hey, back there at room so-and-so, you didn't do this and you should have done this. Hey, when you entered in and one of them popped up and one of them didn't, you should have done this. And so I asked one of the officers, like, man, you guys are intense. And I, I kind of said in jest, this will never happen in liberal. And he said, that's your problem. We can't train as, this will, as if this will never happen. Why are they so intense? Here's why. And he told me this. We've got to train as though this could happen today. Because if we aren't prepared when there is no pressure, our officers will have no idea what to do when the pressure comes. An active shooter in southwest Kansas, in liberal, at South Middle School, never. Don't tell a cop that. Don't tell Mark West that. They never want it to happen, but they'll be prepared for when it does. And that's the challenge tonight. That's why we come to church and we sit up. That's why we come to church and we fight fatigue. That's why we come to church and we fight distraction. That's why we come to church and we fight off the thoughts rattling in our brain at a thousand miles an hour. That's why we come to church and try to put up our phones if we can't. That's why we come to church and we bring our Bibles with us. That's why we bring a notebook if we can't. That's why we're glued in. Because the pressures of life might happen today. And you have an opportunity. 
If you'll learn to approach God's work carefully every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, when the pressures of life come and the high winds of life come, it won't blow your house down. Why? You'll have convictions. Every sermon you sit under is an opportunity for a conviction to be forged. And if not forged, a conviction to be strengthened. Do you get that? It's preparing now for what you will face later. One thing I'm going to do to help you with that. So I'm going to give you this, make sure this resource is available tonight in the foyer following the service. We've got 75 to 80 of these. I'll order more if we need. This is called a Sermon Notes Journal. I preached a, a revival this last October at the, uh, the Avenue Bapt- uh, I think Valley Avenue Baptist Church in Nebraska. And uh, they, they put these together for their church people. He has the same burden I do. And, and the, the front page says, Sermon Notes General, follow along and follow through. And each page has, each section has two pages. It has a follow along page and it has a follow through page for every sermon that you'll hear. Follow along is just taking your notes. The follow through is writing down what you're going to do with what you heard. I like that, don't you? A lot of times we write notes, but all we have is information at that point. You understand, we're never transformed until we apply what we hear. I'm, I am convinced of this, that among God's people, including our church, there is an information surplus, but an obedience deficit. We, we have been well educated beyond our willingness to obey. I'm convinced of that. And here's why. We don't write down any follow through plans. No intentionality, no system, no plan. And so this allows you to do this. You do not have to buy this. It's only $5. I bought them for 12 apiece. Sell them to you for five because I'm a good guy. You do not, if you don't walk into church with one of these, I'm not going to think you're you're treating the preaching lightly. There will be no judgment from me. All I wanted to do was try to give you a practical resource. For some of you, this is going to be your thing. This is is what's going to help you. Um, For some of you, you got your own system and all of that. It is proven science. You retain more when you write it down. Yeah, I've never fallen asleep. Well, I have a couple times at college. Rarely fallen asleep when I was writing. It just helps me. Really, really helps me to stay tuned in. And, and, and there's some things that come on the screen, some thoughts of application that you, the Holy Spirit might give you, and you need to write those things down. What does this help you do? It helps you prepare for pressure. This can become a book of convictions if you'll take it serious. I'm not a note taker. Have you ever tried? You ever tried? You're automatically placing yourself at a disadvantage if you don't take notes. Did you know that? Science proves it. Just look it up. Writing down something really, 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 really can help you. I would encourage you to do that. Let me give you a verse. I'll read to you a story and we'll be done. James chapter 1 says this. Receive with meekness. Don't miss this. The engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Did you catch that? Why should we receive the word with with carefulness? Well, James says it has the power to save your soul. Not just save your soul from an eternity in hell. That's the greatest thing it can save your soul from. But it can save your soul from the pressures of life. Just like Daniel faced. Can I read you a story? I think it'll drive the point home. Will you stay with me? Say amen. Amen. Stay with me here. I'm just going to read it to you. And sometimes it's hard to listen to a story if you're not looking at it. So it's it's going to take some effort on your part. 
A perfect example of this is a story about a man named Chesley Soli Solenberger. He was born in Denison, Texas on January 23, 1951. He enrolled in the U.S. Air Force Academy in 1969. He graduated as an officer in 1973. He served as a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force from 73 to 80. He flew Vietnam-era F-4 Phantom II jets. In 1980, Solenberger joined Pacific Southwest Airlines as a commercial pilot. Over his years as a professional pilot, Soli was an instructor, check this out, a safety chairman, and an accident investigator. All this experience would be put to the test on January the 15th, 2009, when the U.S. Airways plane he was flying struck a large flock of Canadian geese during liftoff from New York's LaGuardia Airport. Both engines were damaged and suddenly neither was providing any thrust. So with air traffic control, solely discussed his options. One, return to LaGuardia. Or two, land at a nearby airport in New Jersey. With his experience, he quickly deemed the situation too dire for the plane to stay in the air long enough for either of those plans to be successful. So he decided to perform an emergency water landing on the Hudson River. He announced over the intercom what no passengers of an airplane want to hear. Brace for impact. And he took the plane down onto the water's surface. The maneuver was a success. All 155 people on board flight 1549 survived and all but a few were uninjured. When interviewed later, solely as they called him, and they made a movie about this, he said this, the moments before ditching the plane was the worst, sickening, pit of my stomach, falling to the floor feeling I've ever experienced. He said one way of looking at this might be that for 42 years, 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in the bank of experience, education, and training. And on January the 15th, he said the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. I can't help but think, church, there were days of Solenberger's training where he thought, I'll never need this. Water landing? A 747? On the Hudson River? Why are we doing this in the, you know, the, the, what do they call those suckers? The simulated training things? I, there had to have been moments of lectures where, 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 where he thought, nah. Where he was tempted to get distracted and take it lightly. Little did he know that, that, that 40 years later, after 20,000 hours of flying, his training would intersect with real life. And had he taken it casually, There'd have been 155 people killed. Approaching the word of God carefully right now can save your soul from a devastating crash later. You know what you get to do when you come to church? You get to make small, regular deposits in the conviction bank. If you listen, if you take it serious, if you fight distraction and fatigue and carelessness, if you stay energetic, you can, make, you can make a deposit in the conviction bank. And who knows? You might have your Hudson River experience. Your spouse leaves you. Your boss tells you, we got to lay you off. The doctor says you have cancer. 
or any number of pressures of life that can come your way. And when those pressures come and want to make a huge withdrawal, you would be wise to have sufficient funds. Why do so many good, well-meaning Christians give in temptation over and over and over? Because they have insufficient funds. And when the devil comes knocking on their conviction bank, they have nothing. Why? Don't take preaching serious. Don't read their Bible and take it serious. They've made no deposits. And so the pressures of life have blown their house down. I love you too much to not challenge you to take every message you hear from me and otherwise very, very serious. Yeah. I would love more amens in our congregation. I love it. I just love it. It's my thing. But if I never get an amen, it's okay. So long as you're glued in. So long as you are making deposits. I'm cool with that. But I'm begging you, take it serious. I'm begging you, teach your kids how to listen to a sermon. Teach them. It starts when they're real young. And I know it's a battle, but it starts when they're young. Teach them how to make deposits. Because the pressures of life will soon want to make a withdrawal. Man, I want you to survive the pressures of life. So bad. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. Stand to your feet every head bowed.